Today on While Not Perfect, I have a timely and important episode for you. In response to many recent events involving gun violence, we as Simply V stepped back and asked ourselves, how can we help? To answer this question, I turned to our community and sought out a person who is initiating positive and powerful discussion in the community. Today, I interview April Obojkowicz. She is an attorney working as a clerk for an Illinois appellate court judge. She also volunteers for Be Smart, a program designed to prevent minors access to guns, promote secure gun storage, and reduce the risk of suicide. She lives with her husband and three daughters in the north suburbs of Chicago and is a friend and neighbor of mine who I genuinely trust and respect immensely. In today's episode, you will learn about Be Smart, a social movement aimed to change the narrative surrounding safe gun storage because if we are open and talk about safe storage practice with our friends and family, the stigma will fade and our children and communities will be safer. We do have the power to reduce child gun deaths. And I think that if we could, you know, all of us are doing it, then it's not gonna be uncomfortable. If this is one of your four things you ask every parent before a play date or before your teen goes to their house, or if we chat about it on the playground, I think that it's gonna change, you know, this culture around it. We are gonna depoliticize this issue and make it a safety issue. And that's how we're gonna make a change. And I think we're gonna save lives. In today's episode, you will learn how to avoid politics and stay focused on the goal to reduce incidences of gun violence and suicide, why it's important to ask friends and family how their guns are stored, and why gun violence and suicide might be more common than you think. And before we get into the episode, I just want to remind everyone that these conversations can be uncomfortable and triggering. I recommend you take time to listen and understand your reactions to this conversation and seek out Be Smart if you want to get involved. Also, if you feel overwhelmed after listening to this episode, take a break, do some self-care and be gentle on yourself. With that being said, welcome to another episode of Well, Not Perfect. April, thank you for being here today. And I know you so well on the side of, you know, personal fun mom life. I was trying to think about when we became friends and the first time I remember seeing you was at the park, maybe like an Easter egg hunt or something. Do you remember that? I do remember that. Yes. And you didn't live in your house at this point than the house that you're in now. No. And now we're neighbors, which is really nice. And you have more kids because at first I think there was just one and now you have three and they, all of ours, all of ours go to school together. So we see each other at drop off and pick up and on the weekends and everything. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. It's been super fun. I'm glad you guys are close now. When you got into Be Smart, what made you do that? Was it mostly your kids? Was it your legal background? What really like got you into it? So I, you know, people always say, how can I help prevent gun violence? What can I do for gun violence prevention? And of course, voting, of course, calling representatives is a very tangible way to try to make a difference. But what got me hooked on Be Smart is that it's a tangible way to connect with your community and to really talk about gun safety with your neighbors, your friends, your family. I think a lot of movements in the United States starts with our community. It doesn't have to come from the top down. And this just really spoke to me that this was a way that we could make our children safer and do it on a community level without, you know, waiting for change to come from above. When did you first get involved? A few years ago. So the, the Be Smart campaign started in 2015, and it was just a way, a framework that was designed for parents to sort of, 
you know, talk about gun safety, normalize the conversations about gun safety, you know, just take responsible actions of safe storage, asking others about safe storage. And so it was 2015 that it began. I didn't get involved until probably 2016, 2017. I just heard a presentation and I loved it. I loved that it wasn't political. I loved that it was, the focus was on safety. And I love that it was something that I could do today or tomorrow to right away start, you know, normalizing a conversation that that really is an important one. Do you think being a mother just drives you to be a part of this even more with kids that are in a building and school and just kind of a kind of a target right now with the gun violence that's happening? For sure. I mean, gun violence right now is the leading cause of death for children in the United States. And that statistic hurts me because when I started this, it was the second leading cause of death and maybe even been the third when I, you know, when they first started this campaign and gun violence is just, it's killing our children and it's killing them more children as the years go by. And so, you know, this is something that every parent and every adult I think can get behind. This is Mm -hmm. not, you know, this, the safety of our children is something that we all care about. That's just who we are as parents. And so, yes, having my children definitely made me more driven to, to get this message out and to be more involved. You know, I was involved in other gun violence prevention measures before I had kids, but then with, with the Be Smart, that really that really got me involved once I had my children. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it's really, it's really admirable. And it is something that I think a lot of parents, people want to do, but there's this discomfort and this like really awful feeling that you get when you hear children and gun violence and leading cause of death that makes people I think turn away and avoid this conversation or maybe someone's having a hard time listening right now like they're avoiding like their own feelings and so for anyone who wants to help or get involved yet they have such strong uncomfortable feelings because it's just hard to tolerate these words it's hard to tolerate these feelings I always encourage people to kind of commit yourself to like a dedicated amount of time. So if this episode is 40 minutes long, you know, commit yourself to that. And after the recording, after you listen, go do something that's really fulfilling and self-care and very positive, because I think people over dive in and then they burn out or they completely avoid and feel guilty. And there's like all these feelings. So on the side of like me being a therapist and just knowing how people kind of feel in these conversations, I encourage people to commit yourself to this, but then sandwich it with something that's not this. And that way you can kind of continue to tolerate these really uncomfortable conversations that, you know, we like to pretend aren't our problems, but the reality is if it becomes our problem, it's going to be tragedy. So everyone here just got to stick, stick with us and listen and learn. And then just remember that you can always do something for yourself afterwards. On that same note, do you notice that some people can get uncomfortable during presentations or during conversations like this? So, yes. I mean, I think when people hear, oh, it's a gun violence prevention campaign, or, you know, we're talking about gun deaths, children, child gun deaths, or child access to guns, people can get a little defensive, especially a gun owner. But typically after the after the presentation or after I give them my message, they are, it's a total 180. They're like, mm-hmm. at first I was very defensive. I felt combative. And then at the end of your presentation, I felt proud that I was a responsible gun owner, that you know, this is something as a gun owner that I should be asking other parents. And, you know, I think when you hear the word gun, we tend to as a society politicize it and 
this message that I'm spreading is the opposite. It's mm -hmm. purely focused on the health and safety of our children. And there's really no adult I've ever met that can't get behind this message. So right. it's you know, a beautiful I, idea, a middle path. Yeah. And, and being interested in, I believe in middle path mediation. So it's taking polarized views and finding a middle path that we can all agree on and a win-win. And we do that in, in my field in counseling, we do that every single day. So it's easy for me to believe that we can actually depolarize this and bring people together because we do it every day in my office. And so I'm very positive and I'm very much a believer in the fact that we can resolve this issue and that we don't need to pick a left or a right. We can actually just kind of negotiate this middle path. And I'm really excited to support that, especially because gun violence and mental health go hand in hand, um, both on the prevention side and also on the back end of recovering from trauma. So this is this is an issue that Simply Be has decided to get behind because of the mental health impact that we're going to obviously talk about today. So let's get into some of the questions that we've got prepared today. Can you tell us a little bit about the mission of Be Smart and how other people can get involved? Sure. So um, like I mentioned before, Be Smart is, it started in May of 2015. It's a campaign to raise awareness about gun safety. Um, it's for adults. It's not a, it's not a presentation or a campaign geared towards children. It's for adults and how we can come together to make it safer for kids. So the biggest focus is on gun storage and the consequences of unsecured guns in people's homes. And, you know, I can go through that later, but it, the main focus is normalizing a conversation between adults on how we can make things safer for our children. And that is the sole mission is just the safety of our, of our kids. Mm -hmm. And what are some of the statistics behind firearms and children's stuff? So right now about 1600 children are killed by guns each year. And that's an average of five children a day. You know, as I said before as well, it's the leading cause of death for children in America. And that those statistics to me are just enough for us to, I, you know, we should all come to kind of this grinding halt and say, what can we do? How can we change this? And if you're looking at unsecured guns, you know, and the consequences of that, that's one change that we can make. You know, nobody is talking about anything with the second amendment. We all know that, you know, to, to have, keep your house safe, to keep your children safe, everyone is allowed to have a gun in their home, but how can we keep it safe? How can we keep our children away from you know, an unsecured gun, an unsupervised unsecured gun. So that's the goal. That's the mission of Be Smart. Mm -hmm. Is that because there's a correlation between guns and homes? Like where does death of guns typically occur? So they do typically occur in the homes and especially for young children. You know, while school shootings make a lot of the headlines or these mass shootings, we hear about that a lot. Um, but the reality is that for children that are super young, especially under the age of 13, gun homicides most frequently occur in the home. And then for 90% of unintentional shootings, those also occur in the home. So you're talking about getting rid of a lot of, you know, child gun deaths by just securing, securing guns. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to school shootings, where are those people obtaining their guns? So for school shootings, if you're under the age of 18, we see that incidents of gunfire on school grounds, 80% of those children under the age of 18 used a gun that was either from their home or from the home of a relative. So again, if you're 18 or older and you legally purchased a gun, that's a totally different story. But for a school shooter that's eight, under the age of 18, 80% of them used a gun that was either their own in their home 
or our relatives. And so that is a huge number. You know, just think if those guns had been properly stored and secured, mm-hmm. what that could what that could mean. Right. And what you're saying is that this is not a complete removal of guns or or kind of politicizing it. What you're talking about is in in my world we call it harm reduction, which is like if this if this is a source of behavior or a source of access, how do we mitigate and reduce the harm to the point where it is so low that we are saving lives? So this isn't like a black and white solution. This is really just saying, let's reduce the statistics, let's reduce the odds, and let's play the numbers game. Let's reduce the harm as much as possible and avoid the argument of, you know, all or nothing, which, you know, you could argue is like the ideal to win your side, yet that's not what this is about. This is about reducing the the odds and making it more safe. So do you think that there are some things that people can agree on to keep away from the politics? Like what are you seeing people agree on? I do. I mean, I think at the beginning of every presentation I give, I always say everyone in this room can find common ground. You know, we all want our kids to grow up happy and healthy. We each have the right to make responsible decisions about how to protect our homes, our families, and our communities. And that includes whether or not to have a gun. And then, you know, if we can even prevent one child gun death or one child gun injury, I think it's our responsibility to do so. So those are three main things that I think anyone listening can agree on. Right. Because it's lock the guns up. Yes. Yeah. Lock the guns up and Mm -hmm. then you will reduce the opportunities for children under 18 to obtain the gun, whether they're intentionally trying to harm someone or unintentionally trying to harm someone. Let's lock the guns up. That's really the message. Exactly. Yes. And then why are kids using guns? Like what are the motives? What's happening? So there's four main, you know, I don't know around like exactly what the motive would be, but there are four main consequences of unsecured guns. And so some of them are kids are kids, right? They're curious. They can be impulsive, especially if you're talking about teenagers and the presence of an unsecured gun can just heighten a risk of either unintentional shooting or death by suicide, any of those things. So I would just highlight, if you um, don't mind, there's four consequences. And like, I like to use these specific headlines that have actually been in the national news, just to kind of give give you an idea of how this plays out in our nation every day. Um, The first consequence is in January of 2018, there was a school shooting in Kentucky at Marshall County High School, where more than a dozen students um, were shot and wounded. And two of them, Bailey Holt and Preston Cope were killed. Now the 16 year old shooter in that situation had gained access to his stepfather's unsecured pistol from his stepfather's bedroom. So that was a school shooting that happened because a 16 year old gained access to his stepfather's gun that was unsecured. So that's one consequence is a school shooting. You know, the next tragedy is an unintentional shooting. So in 2018, in May of 2018, there was a four-year-old boy in Louisa, Virginia, and he unintentionally shot his younger brother, his two-year-old brother, and he, he killed him. And that was a result of an unsecured gun. The parents said they had kept it high in an upper cabinet. You know, they didn't think that their kids could reach it or that they knew where it was. And that resulted in a two-year-old's death. Another headline or another thing that we see is this sort of cycle of violence where young kids or teens believe that they need a gun to protect themselves from others or that, you know, if other people have guns, they need one too. And so having unsupervised and, and unsecured guns around you know, contributes to that cycle of violence. It doesn't interrupt that ever. And then the final consequence is suicide. So there's, there was a headline in 2013 about 
Mikey, who was from New York, and he was a friendly, popular eighth grader. His parents didn't see any warning signs. They said he was an expert bowler, an athlete. He was happy the day that he died by suicide. They didn't see any, he woke up happy that day and went to school, but he came home and took his father's unlocked loaded gun and he shot himself. And so easy access to a loaded gun was literally a matter of life and death for, for him. And, you know, he was, he was only 13. So those are four sort of consequences that we see for, from unsecured guns. And people tend to sort of group them, you know, like a school shooting, suicide, and they don't call it gun violence, but all four of those instances, you know, are gun violence and preventable deaths really. And so that's what, you know, this mission and Be Smart is all about is to really reduce those headlines to see less of that and and how we can do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think when I hear that too, I hear some people who are thinking it through some people who are impulsive and then some people who are four years old and not thinking about anything. So there's different populations of people that have access to guns and then use them differently. And from a area that I can speak about in terms of suicide and suicide ideation, it is common for a teenager to have suicidal ideation in one day because their emotional pain or physical pain is too much, but then the next day it subsides and it's less and they feel more passive with their suicidal ideation. And it literally is 24 hours at a time. So on the, on the bad day at the wrong time, there is, there is a person out there who, who might have access to a gun and end their life when the next day they may not be. So I really believe in that because we are doing those suicide ideation assessments every day and we are taking them 24 hours at a time because people change so quickly that we know that suicide ideation does not stay static from day to day. It actually changes by the minute. And so removing access to guns would prevent those those, uh, deaths. So can you talk to us a little bit about what SMART stands for and how does it help mitigate the risk that you guys see? Sure. So yeah, SMART is an acronym. So you kind of, you know, each letter stands for something that we can be doing as parents. So the S in SMART is the main takeaway from from this presentation and for what we do, which is secure your guns in your homes and in your vehicles. And so if anyone takes something away from today, it's this message. And you might be thinking, well, I'm not a gun owner. I don't need to write this down or remember this, but it's important because when you are going to ask other people about their storage methods, you want to know what the right answer is or what you're looking for when you ask them how they store their guns. And so the proper way to store a gun is unloaded, locked, and stored separately from the ammunition. And the reason why it's sort of this three-tiered process is because if a child were to get past a lock, and find a gun, it should be waiting there unloaded. If the ammunition is right next to it and they can figure out how to load it, then you know we've we've not done our job. So the three-tier approach, once again, is you know, locked, unloaded, stored separately from the ammunition. That's how we should be storing our guns to really prevent these child gun deaths. There are 13 million children that live in a household with a gun, and 5.4 million of those children live with a gun that's loaded and unsecured. So it's a lot, there's a lot of people that are not properly securing their guns. So that's the S. The M is modeling responsible behavior. And that's just what we were talking about, you know, making sure you're using those storage methods. A lot of the gun safety tips or training that we've experienced up to now puts this onus on the kids. You know, if you find a gun, don't touch it, 
run and tell a parent or an adult. And that's a perfect message. We should definitely be, be giving that out there. But I really believe that it is our responsibility to never put a kid in that situation. We know kids, we know how well they listen to us. We know how much they can remember in a day and, and they're not many adults. You know, it's our responsibility to let, to avoid that situation altogether. And so modeling that responsible behavior is just super important for us as adults. The A in SMART stands for ask, and that's just asking about storage methods before you go to someone else's home. And this includes teenagers. It includes, you know, before, your babys before you let your child babysit at somebody's house. It includes going over to someone's house as a family because, you know, we know when we get together, we all the adults talk maybe in the main living area or um, in the kitchen and the kids are kind of running wild. Well, that's not supervised. You know, that's not, you, they, it takes an instant for them to find something and, and something to go wrong. So really asking about guns in other people's homes is big. And I always say, you know, you don't have to ask, do you have any guns? Because that might put people on the defensive. I always say, ask if you have any guns, how are they stored? You know, before we come over, I have just a couple of safety asks and then have that be one of them. So you really want them instead of saying, oh, we do, but the kids don't know where it is. Or yeah, we do, but it's you know stored safely. And you're gonna to wanna to know what that means. So I always say, ask about the storage method as well. And then the R is recognizing the role that guns play in suicide. Like we, we just mentioned, 40% of child gun deaths are suicides. And so it's, it's huge, the number of, you know, the effect of easy access to guns on suicide, child suicide is huge. And so I really think, again, that just recognizing this role, I think we think of that as suicide. We don't think of that as a gun death, but it is a huge component. And, and the access is really makes or breaks mm -hmm. somebody's life. And most people who attempt suicide do not die unless they use a gun. It's just right. the most fatal you know, means of self-harm. Mm -hmm. And so 90% of people that use a gun in suicide die. Mm -hmm. So it's just, to me, that's like the most preventable death. And I just think that that's something that we really have to recognize. So the R stands for just recognizing the role that guns are playing in this child suicide. And then the T is to tell, to do this, what we're doing, you know, talking to each other about this, normalizing these conversations, spreading the message. If anyone's thinking right now, you know, I haven't, I go to my neighbor's house every day and I've never mentioned it's going to be weird now you know, you can use this podcast. I was listening to this podcast. I never thought to ask this before. So I'm going to start now. You know, you just have to start because the more we do it, then it can make, you know, an irresponsible gun owner shouldn't, you know, have be having people at their house. It should not be having kids at their house. And it's not something we can see. It's not a pool with a gator that's not around it. It's not a car seat that's not there when you come to pick up my kid. It's a safety issue that we cannot see. And so we have to talk about it if we want to make a change. Mm -hmm. I agree. And I think, to, you know, to what I said a little bit earlier about what people don't want to admit or acknowledge that this is an issue or a conversation because it's so violent. It's, it's really disturbing to think about. And, you know, I think parents are more willing to ask if they have prescriptions locked up and stored away than they are willing to talk about guns. And it's, important to kind of acknowledge if you think about kids access to drugs or alcohol in other people's homes, and that makes you nervous, or if you don't let your child sleep over at someone else's house, cause you are afraid of their access to those, you know, bar carts or, or whatever it may be. You also need to be really considering the gun access to, you know, how you're making decisions as a parent. And 
the other thing is that these conversations have us look at ourselves and think, oh, you know, what are we doing? How are we storing? You know, we overestimate our, you know, ability to, to make good decisions and maybe we're not being smart in our family. So these questions make us look at ourselves. They make us look at our neighbors. And I think you just make some really good points that this is a new conversation that a lot of people might be having. It might be uncomfortable right now, but the more that it's done, the more comfortable. And after the, you know, the first time someone asked me this, when their child was over at my house, it caught me off guard. I had never heard anyone ask me and it really kind of took me aback for a second. And I responded and similar to the slide that you guys have, like the response is like, you know, no guns and no allergies. Like it was just like a really simple text that moms always send. And then the third or fourth time I heard it, it was sort of like the allergy question, which back in my day, we didn't ask about allergies and now we do. So it's, it's right. It's like, we're evolving, we're getting better. So I think those are some, you know, really good points. Now we talked about how to talk to parents or Mm -hmm. adults, sorry, adult to adult. How do we talk to kids about this? So I always say, you know, when you're talking to your children about guns, definitely the message of, if you see a gun, don't touch it is perfect. And I always say to my kids, if you see a gun real or fake, ask an adult before you can touch it. So in other words, even if it's a Nerf gun or if it's a squirt gun, you know, these days real guns can look fake and fake guns can look real. And so I try to just keep reinforcing that message. If you see a gun, ask an adult before you can play with it or touch it. Now, having said that, I like to use this little anecdote about my daughter because she does have food allergies. And as an aside for statistics, um, there are 5 million children in the U.S. that have a food allergy. There are 5.4 million children in the U.S. living with an unload, unlocked loaded gun. So if you know somebody with a food allergy, you know someone that's living with a, a, an unsecured gun in their home. And so it, it is more prevalent than you might think. But my daughter, so she does have food allergies. And obviously we talk about her food allergies every day. It's, you know, what is she going to eat if she goes to a friend's house? Always ask me before she eats something that she doesn't know. It's just, it's, she eats every day. So we talk about it every day. Well, a couple of years ago, we had a bunch of people over for Halloween and it was chaotic in the house and everyone was swapping candy. And I happened to look over at the same moment that a neighbor of ours, an older boy was handing, like swapping candy and was handing her a Reese's peanut butter cup and she was ready to take it. And I intervened because I happened to see it and, you know, everything was fine, but it just reinforced that message that you can talk about your kids with the stuff every, you can talk to your kids about stuff every single day. And they're still going to get caught up in a moment and make a wrong decision because they're kids. And so, especially to us, when they get older with peer pressure and all those things, you know, they're, they're going to make poor decisions. We all did. We were all kids making those same bad decisions. So again, I don't think, I think it's definitely, you should talk to your kids about it, but it's a precaution. It's not a guarantee. Mm-hmm. You just have to really reinforce that the, the responsibility is on us, not them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And any age, not just kids, but like adolescents, high school kids, college kids, all of the thing, teaching our kids, like how to walk away if they see something that's uncomfortable and try and have that exit strategy. So in my world, we're talking about exit strategies for drugs and alcohol at parties every day. So what is the exit strategy for guns or anything that's violent or aggressive and, or potentially right. Potentially violent, meaning like just using a gun to harm or hurt someone intentionally or unintentionally. There's a program called text for help and we'll link it in a little show notes. It used to be called text a tip. 
it used to be for guns and school violence to anonymously text communications about someone and it switched to help because people started using it for mental health and we'll we'll link that here but that's really powerful because you can leave a party and you can text this to a line and they can do the work for you anonymously to secure that gun so there's a lot of things that teenagers can do that is very proactive it takes their power back and they can text and prevent all this violence and you know, fortunately or unfortunately, we don't see the results of this text line because they prevent so much violence. But if they showed the results, it's significant how much violence has been prevented because very courageous kids are texting these and they just know, you know, what the, what the problem can be. So, okay, let me move to my next question here. So I see that R and SMART stands for recognize the roles of gun and suicide, which we talked about, but what are the statistics behind that? Sure. So 40% of child gun deaths are suicides, and that's nearly 700 child gun suicides each year. One study has shown that over 80% of children that are under the age of 18 who died by gun suicide used a gun that belonged to a parent or a relative. So for people of all ages, access to, to a gun increases the likelihood of death by three times. So, but for children, you know, this is going to be in their own homes or the, the homes of a relative. And also, like we talked about a little bit earlier, most people who attempt suicide do not die unless they use a gun. And you know, 90% of suicide attempts with a gun result in death. It's just a much higher fatality rate than any other means of self-harm. And this contributes to the fact that you know, 40% of these child suicides involve a gun. Mm -hmm. um, that's almost half of child child suicides that involve a gun. Mm -hmm. And that's just you know so heartbreaking to me because, like you had mentioned earlier you know, these impulsive feelings might only last a day. Most people who attempt suicide and don't, you know, and fail, don't attempt again. So, mm -hmm. but with a gun, it's it's 90% fatal. So it's really, it's really a huge impact. And it also is, this goes hand in hand with what we talked about before with asking other people, even when your child is a teen, asking other people about their storage methods, because that could be, you know, if your own child is having, any sort of suicidal thoughts um, and knows that their friend has access to an unsecured gun. You know, it, the domino effect is huge. And so I think, you know, we always give out sort of these warning signs that general warning signs of people that might be having suicidal thoughts, but I'm no expert in that. I feel like this mm -hmm. is your, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is your well, part to say, but I know the statistics of the consequences, but I don't know, you know, what the warning signs are. Yeah. Well, there's like, there's kind of, in my opinion, there's like two types of suicidal ideation. There's like chronic and then there's acute and working with athletes who are suicidal or die by suicide. A lot of theirs are acute. So I'll talk about that one first, because that's actually the least discussed and the least known. And I think there's a disservice by overemphasizing the chronic suicidal ideation that we call SI, because it says that there's warning signs. So chronic is lack of interest, isolation, withdrawal from peers, lack of motivation to complete homework, you know, just expressing more thoughts of depression or anxiety, things like that. So that seems to me very known, very educated. We get 15 to 25 new calls per week at Simply Be, and it's parents who are like, my kid is becoming 
unhappy before they become worse, I'd like for help. So we're, we're shifting in mental health with chronic SI. Acute SI is not talked about as often, and I'd love to just do a whole episode on it, but it is when someone has something so instantaneously traumatic that they become suicidal because they don't believe that they can live through it. So for example, an athlete who gets banned for academic or gets banned for drugs or alcohol on campus, or there was a, there was a, a suicide in Naperville. It wasn't by gun. So I'll say that, but he was accused of spreading naked photos of another girl and the principal accused him of it. The boy asked to be excused. He left, he walked away and he jumped off of a parking, parking lot platform. And it was because the feeling of being ruined by your reputation or ruining your future, there are people who would rather die than face those potential consequences. And it scares me because let's say this happens to a kid. They know that their neighbor has an unsecured gun. They know that that neighbor doesn't lock their screen door during the daytime. They can walk into that screen door, grab the gun and complete suicide. So the acute suicidal ideation for me scares me more because it's not talked about and parents can't look for it. Yes. So it's super scary. And I've not really heard that term in my field. I've not really heard it out in the community yet, but I kind of thought about it as acute SI after seeing all these athletes suicides where people are like, we didn't see signs. We didn't know. Well, what's fine. What they're finding out is that there's actually stuff going on under the radar that the athletes are kind of hiding Mm -hmm. and then they get expelled. They get cut from captain. They're not getting playing time. The coach just told them they're getting, you know, they're not getting scholarship. These are the, and I mean, there's, we quote one study in our campaign as well, that a national survey of high school students showed that 17% had seriously considered attempting suicide within the last year. And 17%, I totally agree with you. I think that that's sort of where this gun issue comes into play is this fleeting thought all of a sudden of, I can't overcome this. I need a quick solution. And if there is easy access to a gun, that is a matter of life and death for these children, period. You know, when we know as adults that you can get through it and you can get help, but they are incapable as not fully formed mature adults yet to make that decision. So, and I think, you know, if people are talking to their kids about gun violence or about suicide, it is also saying, Hey, people become suicidal very quickly when they think the world, when they think their world is ending because of a naked photo or because of academic failures. And if you ever in that moment, just feel like you can't live, you may, you may not be depressed. You may be the happiest person in the world. And these thoughts don't discriminate. Anyone can have them if the pain is strong enough. So also just kind of normalizing suicide and really letting that become Mm -hmm. more of a conversation. It's, you know, it's, it's uncomfortable, but I think the narrative's changing a little bit. What do you see on your end in terms of like narratives and conversations about some of these hard topics? I definitely see that this is, this is changing. And I think like any sort of public health crisis that we've had in this nation, it has started with our societies. It has started with parents saying, we need to make a change. You know, there's a, there's been a huge push for water safety for, we all know the negative effects of smoking now, you know, we've done this sort of push as parents to make cars safer and it can start with us. It really can. And the more we make a movement on this and the more we talk about it and the more we normalize this, we, we do have the power to reduce child gun deaths. We just do. And I think that if we could, you know, 
all of us are doing it, then it's not going to be uncomfortable. If this is one of your, you know, four things you ask every parent before a play date or before your teen goes to their house, or if we chat about it on the playground, I think that it's going to change, you know, this culture around it. We are going to depoliticize this issue and make it a safety issue. And that's how we're going to make a change. And I think we're going to save lives. And it's just, you know, I think it starts with us. Yeah. I think there's just been like you and two other women in our community who have talked to me about this one from like, do you have, you know, do you have safe storage for any guns in your home? And then, you know, more with you, cause we're such good friends, but I think just two people have really like made me more comfortable with this has like really normalized it for me. So it's interesting that it didn't take a lot for me to come around. Totally. It's really and I mean, think about, you know, the, the consequences, like we talked about, it's, it's, it's going to end up calling out the irresponsible gun owner. So anyone listening right now who is a responsible gun owner, this shouldn't be uncomfortable at all for them. You know, they are, I have asked um, another parent if they had guns in their house and how were they stored? And their response was, yes, we have two guns. This is how they're stored. And my daughter went for a play date. I felt very comfortable with that. The only people that are going to be uncomfortable with this question are going to be irresponsible gun owners who you don't want to be at their house anyway. You know what I mean? So it's really you can't go wrong with a question like this. Mm -hmm. It just can't. Um, It shouldn't make somebody uncomfortable if they're a responsible gun owner or if they don't have a gun in their house. You know, these are questions that would be no problem to answer. But if you're a gun owner who is irresponsibly storing your gun, you might be uncomfortable with these questions, in which case we should not worry about the uncomfortable feeling of an irresponsible gun uh, gun owner over the safety of our children. You know, Mm -hmm. that's what we're weighing here that uncomfortable moment is worth it because you need to know, you know, if there's an unsecured gun in somebody's home. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I really appreciate you coming on and driving this message because, you know, it's volunteer time and it's away from like your work and your family. And so it goes a long way. It goes, this actually will go across the world, which is really cool because there's some countries that do not understand this at all. I wish that was where we live. Um, But yeah, there's going to be a lot of countries listening to this, just really shocked that these are the conversations that two moms are having with elementary children. Totally. Well, I appreciate you having me here. I know that you also didn't have to do this and it just means the world to me that you're willing to help me spread this message. And, you know, both of our causes go hand in hand, right? We're saving children. And this is uh, the most important thing for a community is their children. So absolutely. All right, April, thanks for being on this episode of Well, Not Perfect. Thank you for listening to season three. Make sure you never miss an episode by hitting the subscribe button and consider leaving me a review. And for more information, all things podcast, you can connect with us on Instagram at Well, Not Perfect. See you next week.